If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill. You know, on previous shows, we had wondered what was going to happen, where Darla Anderson was going to end up. Yeah, so last March, uh, right after Coco won the Best Animated Feature Oscar, literally days later, she announced that she was leaving Pixar, mm-hmm. which you and I both found bizarre for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um Number one is her wife still works at Pixar as a producer and is producing the next feature onward after Mm -hmm. Toy Story 4. So Mm -hmm. that was kind of weird. But, you know, also she just won an Oscar. Mm -hmm. So we finally got our answer literally as we started talking about the show today. Got a news alert that she is headed to Netflix to oversee animated features and series. That's huge news. Huge Not all that surprising. I know you and I had talked about that, but what's kind of interesting is that when we were sort of moving the pieces around the board, we were assuming that Darla, given all the years she worked with John, she was going to go sort of clear the path for John at a place like Netflix. So for me, it's fascinating to now have John basically set up shop over at Skydance, and to now have Darla at Netflix. And just last week, we were talking about Lee Unkridge, and again, taking time off to spend time with his family, but it's going to be going to be interesting to see where he lands after yes. his, his year or so sabbatical. He's going to go back to work at some point, so where he goes will be anybody's guess. I mean, all the streaming platforms are really gearing up for animation, it seems like, so I don't know where he'll be. Since we just touched on Pittsburgh, it's worth noting that Today, Tom Hanks tweeted, or actually it was Instagram, mentioned final line, final session is Woody in Toy Story 4. We rode yep. like the wind to infinity and beyond Hanks. And I guess this has prompted Tim Allen. He got on Twitter and he was saying, finished my buzz for Toy Story 4 today and it got emotional. Wonderful full-bodied story. We're all going to love the work this incredible team at Pixar created. We are all going to love this story. Man, it's got everything. I'm in. I'm in. Okay. But there is, there's an air of finality to these mm. tweets, right? Yeah. Is this the end of the Toy Story saga? Probably not. <laughs> I remember Tim Allen was telling the story about the first time that it, he and Tom Hanks saw Toy Story 3. And, you know, that, that they're in a screening room and they sort of look at each other and they're both in tears and they <laughs> they both kind of suck it up and like, oh, this is pretty good. You know, just sort of, you know, don't want to admit I'm getting caught up in the thing. But, Drew, I really hope they don't screw this up. <laughs> I really, really want this to work. And Well, but let's think about since Toy Story 3, we've had several Toy Story tunes, mm-hmm. I believe they were called. Yep. We've had two really good holiday specials. Mm-hmm both of which featured Tim Allen and Tom Hanks. Some of them felt like they had like maybe 30 minutes to record with each of them, but still they were, they were a part of them. Mm -hmm. So it seems like the stewardship of this franchise has been going well and been pretty active since Toy Story 3. So even if it's not totally up to snuff, we could just think of it as another holiday special that we just, you know, it's just a delight to have. So that's, that's my, that's my 
mind frame right now. I'm sure you saw the art early this week where they released the, the image of the new version of Bo Peep. Oh, yeah. And it just, it's so funny because it's just sort of, for me, you know how they were planning originally on using Barbie in the first Toy Story? You know that yep. story, right? <laughs> yes, of course. And she basically roars into Sid's bedroom in her pink Cadillac and she turns to her, come with me if you want to live. Right. It was this wonderful idea. And I, I just, I wonder... Is that what they're looking to do with Bo Peep? That she's been outside of Andy's bedroom and having all these adventures is, you know, she become this hardened adventurer. I cannot, I cannot confirm or deny that, but I think you're on the right track. I've also seen speculation online that she's kind of filling Barbie's role because, you know, there's the live action Barbie movie in development with Anne Hathaway. And they are more legally restricted as to how to use that character in the new movie. I mean, by the time this airs, we'll have seen a new teaser that mm. is going to run at the Super Bowl. So just wait until you get a load of Keanu Reeves' character. I can't say what he is or who he is, but I think people are going to be excited. Okay. And speaking of, of movies we're, we're both very much looking forward to, at this point, we are just three weeks out for How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, which seems to be doing well overseas. It's been released internationally much earlier, and to date, it sold 41 million tickets and I, what's interesting is that they have just started putting out what they the projections for the opening weekend, which right now are supposed to fall between 40 and 45, which when you consider that the, the first one earned 43 back in March of 2010, and then the second earned 49 back in June of 2014, I could get that it would fall in the middle there. What have you been hearing so far? I mean, there's been a lot of talk about you know, a very satisfying sort of end to the trilogy. Yeah, I'm really excited to watch it. We should go to the to the Middle East and go on the How to Train Your Dragon ride in, is it Dubai? Yes, it's, it's yes. the Motion Gate Park. Motion Gate Dubai, yeah. I think we should go over there and ride that ride. But I've heard very good things about it. I mean, uh, Universal is really aggressively marketing this. It, they're doing sort of a... They've been doing a lot of these sort of sneak preview fan screening things. Have you noticed this? Mm -hmm. They did it for Lego last weekend. Yep. They're doing it for How to Train Your Dragon this weekend. And it's a just like sort of a paid sneak preview like they used to do mm -hmm. nationwide. And to me, that is the biggest vote of confidence more than anything else that they are willing to share this movie and let people share their thoughts online. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited. I love the first one. I like the second one. I Definitely would like to see it go out strong. Yeah, the second one got a little lost, but yeah, yeah. you're right. Well, now, speaking of the DreamWorks side of the fence, and in fact, a story that somehow we managed to miss back in January is Chris DeFario, the gentleman who was in charge of DreamWorks for the past two years ago, so stepped away, which I guess really isn't a surprise. You and I have been talking about the whole merging of illuminations and dreamworks in fact chris mandalopoulos or something yeah there have been some very interesting developments there i mean we, we've talked on previous shows about the new shrek film that illuminations is doing yeah just sort of makes sense that they're moving the pieces around the chessboard and getting the new management team in place but now you were talking about uh, next year we've got trolls 2 yeah trolls world tour this year we have abominable which is a co-production with Pearl Studio, which mm -hmm. is also working on the Glenn Keane movie mm -hmm. for Netflix. 
which is interesting because they also farmed out animation duties for Captain Underpants to <laughs> Micros Image, which is a Canadian company, and you know, as a way to cut down costs and clear out the pipeline a little bit. And then after that, we've got crew, a crude sequel in 2020, a Boss Baby sequel in 2021, and then TBD. Okay. So it's kind of fun that you brought up crudes because. Just this past week, I picked up this terrific new book called A Grand Success, The Ardman Journey, One Frame at a Time. It's written by Peter Lord and David Sproxton themselves, the gentleman you know, behind the studio. And it's this wonderful sort of pop the hood on the history of Ardman. And one of the issues they actually talk about in the book is what happened with the Crudes. I mean, that project actually started out as a script that John Cleese was writing as a stop-motion feature. And what ended up happening is this was during the period where DreamWorks had decided that they had a co-production deal with Aardman. Of course, that's when we got, you know, Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, and that's when we got Flushed Away. And at this point, DreamWorks was kind of like, I don't think this is working out. Let's separate. And Crude Awakening was them divvying up the spoils. This was a property that was developed while DreamWorks had its production deal with Aardman. The script, the idea went over to DreamWorks and they then had it developed with Chris Sanders. The reason you want to chase down this book, there's this wonderful moment in this book where it's right after Aardman wins the Academy Award for the Wrong Trousers. That was the best animated short for that year. Best animated short of any year, as far as I'm concerned. I love that short. When you think about how much they got out of that expressionless penguin, or the train sequence in that, I mean, it's it's all it's all masterful. It's a, it's an amazing short. If you you have and the design the, of the design of the seagulls in Finding Nemo is based on that design of that penguin in Grand Oh my Day God! Out. You're or, from, right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Wow. And I've heard Gore Verbinski say that the train sequence at the end of Wrong Trousers was an inspiration for the train sequence in Lone Ranger. So <laughs> there you go. Listen, I can I can connect it all, Jim. Wow, very cool. Well, well <laughs> yeah. speaking of, of connecting things, you have to understand, it's, it's 1994. The Walt Disney Company has just decided to split its animation unit. I remember that famous meeting where animators came in in the morning and they could wander back and forth between two presentation rooms. One was for Pocahontas and the other one was for a teeny little film at that time that was called King of the Jungle. And everybody wanted to go work on Pocahontas because that looked like the prestige film where King of the Jungle looked like this mess. But during the same window of time is when Disney, realizing that you know if they're going to dominate an animation... They need a lot more stuff in the pipeline. So this is, for example, the period of time when they cut the deal with Tim Burton to do Nightmare Before Christmas. This is also during the window of time when they go after John Lasseter, who again had won, I want to say, the year previous with Tin Toy and got them to sign the three-picture deal you know, for Pixar. And, and so what does Disney do? They do the exact same thing. With Aardman, they reach out and they give them the classic three-picture deal, come make movies for us. You accidentally kind of stumbled onto the period where Disney was trying to to get Nick Park and, and company on board. Yeah, so uh, around the same time, 
probably 96 or so, I went to the Disney Institute, mm-hmm. which we could do an entire episode on the Disney oh, Institute, yeah. and we, we should do an entire episode on the Disney Institute. Mm-hmm. But I was taking classes there, and I took a class on stop-motion animation, and the, the professor said, oh, yeah, you know, Nick Park was here last week because they were trying to get they were trying to woo him to make this deal happen. So that's how kind of close I came to that part of the company's history, which is really interesting. And even as a, even when I was that young, I was obsessed with Nick Park. I loved Wallace and Gromit. So it was a real thrill. But uh, things would have been quite different had they gone with Disney. Because as you and I have both heard, and I was probably in this book, that Katzenberg was not maybe the best... Uh, fit for their brand of animation. No, in fact, the, the book is, is pretty much all about that. In fact, it, it, this is amazing section in the middle where they're talking about the project Retopolis, which eventually became flushed away. And that started out as a stop motion project. But Katzenberg had gotten wind of the fact that Pixar was working on this film called Rats, which eventually we all know became Ratatouille. And it was like, but it's not going to happen again. You know, I am not going to be the one who puts out ants after a bug's life. For him, it got very personal very quickly. And so it was like, look, give me the thing with all the character designs that you've done. And we'll do that in, in CG here in Los Angeles. And it was actually working on that film. And the fact that it, it just it kind of got ripped out of their hands and everything that they thought made it kind of special in English and, and, you know, that Wallace and Gromit feel that made them decide, you know, this really isn't working out. So, you know, maybe we should agreeably part ways. But anyway, a wonderful book, well worth reading. And, and speaking of, of books that are, are worth checking out, I have been waiting on this book forever. I've, I've been a longtime fan of Todd James Pierce. He's a Disney historian, in fact, he works with Paul Anderson over at the a wonderful website, the Disney History Institute. And in fact, he did that amazing One Year in Wonderland, I want to say. But the, he followed that up with, it sounds like an absolutely amazing book, The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation. This is the first major biography of Ward. And those of us who are, are fans of the work that the immediate is doing over at Cartoon Brew know that several years ago, he was trying to get a Ward Kimball bio of his own out the door, but evidently could not get the necessary clearances from Disney in regard to artwork to illustrate the book. And of course, you know, to understand how truly crazy and talented Ward was, you had to sort of see the art. And that ultimately became the deal breaker because, I mean, evidently shared a lot of warts and all stories. And when you get with Ward, Ward wasn't afraid to say anything to anyone. All I want to know is, will this book include the UFO story? That's the reason I am reaching out today to get my copy. When I this <laughs> press release came today, I mean, again, I, that... I got that story from Ward and family. Should we should we tell the story now? Because people might not know it. The first season of the Disney on television show, when they did the Tomorrowland sections of the show, they would do these sort of future speculative programs talking about man in space to the moon and beyond, that sort of thing. And so Ward was th- the guy who was in charge of these episodes, and he worked with Werner von Braun. And Werner von Braun 
is <laughs> the guy who invented the V2 for the Germans. So he actually ended up in charge of the U.S. space program. He collaborated with Ward on these specials. And in fact, you know, to be honest, we can really credit the U.S. space program to Ward Kimball because Man in Space aired on a, a Sunday night or a Tuesday night. That next day, Disney Studios got a call from the White House and it was basically Dwight would like to see that. Would everyone hear it at you know, the White House has been talking about that episode. Could you send us a copy so we could show the president? And sure enough, they get they take it to the White House. He watches it. And it's like, that's an idea worth pursuing. So the Air Force ends up dividing amongst itself and becomes what we know today as NASA. Anyway, Vernifer Brown and, and Ward are, I guess that they had plans to make three and four of these specials. And so one day Warner comes to the, the Disney lot and takes Ward to lunch and says, got to tell you, they're loving these things at the Pentagon. You're doing a great job. And they, they've asked me to approach you guys for a special project. We need you guys to make the movie that we will show the American people the day we have to tell them that UFOs are real. And Ward's like, what? And yet it said, yeah, I mean, well, you know about UFOs. I mean, you know, that as far back as World War II, we've got bombers that had cameramen in the nose cones that got images of the Foo Fighters. And, you know, we've got the ships that crashed, and we've got the bodies, and Ward's like, what, what, what? <laughs> Ward goes to Walt and tells him this, and that's an interesting project to work on. But it, again, it's like, given that Disney had done all the work during World War II, on those training films and that sort of thing, there was a certain level of trust within the government. Like, oh, look, we can trust Disney with this project. They'll keep it under wraps until we need it. And so they begin actually sort of scheduling when Ward is going to go to the Pentagon. And they said, they're going to show me everything. They're going to pull all the footage. I was going to get everything. So I would then know what we were working with and I could work backwards and put together this thing. And so <laughs> it's the Friday before Ward is going to be flying out to Washington, D.C., when he gets the call for Werner, and he's like, I'm sorry, I have bad news, and we were just moving this project through the last set of approvals, because we had to pull all the imagery, we had to get all the reference stuff you're going to be looking at when you came out here, and one of the top generals is like, no, we're not ready to do this yet. What if this leaks prematurely? It will cause a panic. And for the rest of Ward's life, this was his biggest regret. He's, you know, I literally, I was 72 hours away from seeing it all, from learning about we're in this bigger place. You know, the truth is out there. Right. He would go to like UFO conventions and stuff later in life and talk about this oh, too, yeah. which is crazy. Yeah. yeah. You remember the George Clooney Tomorrowland movie that Brad Bird directed? Of course. So you remember how they initially did press of that? They had the picture of the magic box that they'd found that was full of artifacts. and Yeah, with the, the disc and the comic book and all that stuff. Yeah. Okay, so I see that, and I go, oh my God, they're doing the Ward Kimball story. And I proceed, I write this piece where I put the whole story out there. It, somehow it gets back to Brad, and somehow it gets back to Clooney, and it's like, wow, that's a really good story. 
that's not the movie we're making, <laughs> but, but that's a really good story. And Right. Well, I think at the time, too, it wasn't the code name 1955. Oh, yeah. Which was the year that this was supposed to happen. And yeah. And it you just, were connecting it, dots that were definitely there, for sure. I felt bad because for a lot of people, it's like, hey, I'm going to go see that Disney UFO movie. It's not a Disney UFO movie. Ward had a career where he had he had disappointments just prior to working on the Man in Space stuff for the Disneyland show. He had been working on Peter Pan. He actually ended up working on the most infamous stuff in Disney's Peter Pan, the the what makes the red man red things. Yeah, we were at a screening of this movie a couple of week and last whenever they put out the blu-ray maybe last summer and boy <laughs> that scene woo, you could feel the crowd getting uncomfortable just watching this thing but the weird thing is he got that gig because he had done such a good job with pecos bill back in what make my music what was that 48 something like that yeah it was just oh let's get ward to do the indians he's really good at the indians even then it didn't land. By the way, uh, before we get any deeper here into Peter Pan, why don't we take a quick commercial break here, Drew? Okay, might seem weird to bring up Peter Pan, but it turns out today the show is going to be posted on February 5th, and February 5th is the 66th anniversary of when Walt Disney's Peter Pan was initially released to theaters. And February, to me, just seems like a weird time to bring out an animated feature. Mm-hmm. You know, it, But it turns out, original Snow White the, 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 went wi- into wide release in February of 1937. Pinocchio was, was released to theaters in uh, February of 1940. Cinderella, February of 1950. And as we mentioned, February of 1953, Peter Pan. And... Even the package features Saludos Amigos and, and Three Caballeros all came out in February. So evidently for a time, Disney thought this was the month to do that sort of thing. Now, you had mentioned you went to a screening of Peter Pan, what, in the past year or so? Yeah, it was at Griffith Park. It was one of those outdoor screenings where they have the food trucks and blankets and things. And the voice of Wendy came out and spoke. She is about 175 years old, but she was the voice of Alice (laughs) as well. So it was really neat to see her and and to see uh, the movie with a contemporary audience, as I said before, which was very interesting. How did it hold up? I think the animation is is totally unimpeachable, but yeah, some of that cultural stuff was a little iffy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what makes the red man red? I mean, it was kind of hard to watch that with people who you could tell were getting their feathers ruffled um, while watching it, and and with good reason. I mean, it's pretty offensive. Mm. It's it's an interesting kind of artifact of the time. I think if you know the real history of the film, or at least in regard to Disney. As far back as 1935, they've just started working on Snow White, but Walt is sort of like turns to Roy and it's like, if we're serious about this, if we're really getting into the feature animation business, we're going to have to have something in the hopper to do after Snow White. And it's like, we should probably, you know, start looking around for titles. And so Roy goes off and Walt has a wish list. He really liked The Wizard of Oz, but the thing is Samuel Goldwyn had already snapped up the rights to that. He had at one point, instead of Snow White, had been looking at Alice in Wonderland oh, yeah. as that live action animated mix with Ginger Rogers. And so they had that lying around. But the other one he really liked 
was Peter Pan. But again, the problem was that Paramount had made a live action. In fact, I think they made a silent version of Peter Pan. So it's like, I'm sorry, the, the rights are tied up. And Walt heard this from Roy and it was like, no, wait a minute. They've got the live action rights. Go back to, uh, well, again, it's the Hospital for Sick Children in London. That's who J.M. Barry gave the copyrights to, right? Yes, yeah. So he, he said, go back and talk to them because I don't want the live action rights. I want the animated rights. And sure enough, by January of 39, he was able to get the rights. And, and in the same window of time, all right, so uh, Snow White comes out December 37. Is this this enormous hit. Goes into wide release in, in February of 38. Becomes an even bigger hit. But one month later, Germany annexes Austria. And that's pretty much the start of World War II. And this is where the, the Disney story gets kind of dark and weird because you look at the films that they made in this window of time. You've got Pinocchio comes out February of 1940 and masterful film, but it cost $2 million to make. And all of the European markets had closed to do not just Disney films, but Hollywood films in general with that, that market closed off. They didn't have another Snow White. The film ends up losing a million dollars because they couldn't tap that market. And then September that same year, the Blitz starts. And, you know, over 57 days, the Luftwaffe bombs London 56 times. So so picture this, Drew. You're in the story room at Disney, and you're the guy who's boarding the whimsical Peter Pan and the children fly over London town scene. And every day there's a newspaper, you know, or a newsreel or a radio broadcast about how London has been bombed again. And it's like, you know, the guys in that room were like, should we really even be doing? <laughs> this seemed so distasteful or, you know, inappropriate. And Jump ahead to 2002 and return to Neverland, that Disney movie tune movie that they made where it's basically Wendy's daughter joining Peter in, in Neverland. But they've jumped the time ahead to right in the middle of the Blitz. So uh, did you remember the scene at all in the movie where Wendy's daughter has been grabbed and by uh, Captain Hook and the Jolly Roger and they're trying to fly out of London in the middle of the Luftwaffe coming in and, and the Jolly Roger almost crashes into a Messerschmitt. For me, I just, I find it fascinating that, you know, one generation's, this is totally tasteless, is another generation's, this is remarkably entertaining. I think that's also how the Pan movie from a couple of years ago with Hugh Jackman opened up as well. There was some kind of, the blitz was going on when they were taking kids to Neverland too. So it's interesting that that oh, idea man. kind of continued forward too. Wow. Anyway, to sort of be in the period, in the time, to tell this story, I actually pulled the very first Walt Disney Productions annual report, which was published in September of 1940. It's only 19 pages long, but it's just fascinating. One of the things that's kind of thrown away in, in this document is like, they'd say, oh, by the way, the name and basic story of Dumbo, the flying elephant, was purchased by the company and is now being developed by your staff for a, a feature-length cartoon. And it's like, so Dumbo was released in October of 41, Drew. So they announced they've got it in September of 1940 to the, their stockholders. In less than 13 months, they turned that from an eight-page roll-up book yeah. 
into a feature. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, mind you, I know it's 60, only 64 minutes long, but but even so. And, and the other thing that just kind of breaks your heart is that there's a line in here where they're discussing the future plans of the company where it's like, we have just changed our policy of making one new feature every two years to a policy of making two to four features a year. Wow. And that looking ahead... Among the features scheduled for release in 1942 are Peter Pan and Wind in the Willows. Fantasia comes out in November of 1940 and bombs. We have the Disney animator strike that starts in May of 1941 that lasts for five weeks and basically cracks the company in half. Uh, December 7th, 1941, we you know, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. And the very next day, the United States enters World War II. And also on that day... The Army Air Corps moves into the Disney lot to protect the Lockheed plant down the street. And basically the attitude at Disney was if the film isn't already 50% done, it's shelved. Which is why the, the only film that really manages to make it out sort of the way Disney intended, Bambi, uh, gets released in August of 1942. And then from there, it's this almost endless string of package films, uh, Saludos Amigos, uh, Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music. It isn't till November of 46 that Disney sort of rolls the dice. They do Song of the South, which is really mostly a live-action film with some animated vignettes, but it makes enough money that the company is like, okay, so can we pivot away from doing these package movies can we get back to making features again? And so they start going through the inventory. And what do they have of the two films that were closest to being, you know, in shape to do were obviously Peter Pan mm -hmm. and Alice in Wonderland. But they had done some work in 43, some preliminary, you know, sort of like sussing out of Cinderella with a notion of like, if we ever got a chance to make another one of these, what would we do? And Walt looks at that material and it's just sort of like, this feels more like Snow White and Snow White is the movie that made it possible for us to have everything we have here. Let's go with this. But when you think about it, they are $4 million in debt when they decide to roll the dice here. And if Cinderella had failed, Disney would have gone under. Right. But at the same time, when you look at the, the other films that came out in the, the period between when Cinderella got in gear and when it finally showed her in theaters in February of 1950, you had things like Ichabod and Mr. Toad. And from the 1940s, that was going to be a Wind in the Willows, a full-length animated film. And it's like, screw it. Nah. You know, <laughs> we're not going to make that movie. We're, we're burning off inventory. Melody Time, like, you know, that's you know, with the, oh, excuse me, Fun and Fancy Free, my mistake. That's the Mickey and the Beanstalk. There, there, there was a full-length Mickey movie. That same thing. It's like, just take what we have and do I it. I love when they cut the one bean into slices. That's my... <laughs> <laughs> you know? that, well, you know, that's the thing. That, that's kind of a interesting an analogy to, to what was actually going on right. in the company at that time. Cinderella comes out February of 1950, makes $8 million. And there's so much stuff that would not have happened if Cinderella hadn't hit, hit that way. In fact, that's the seed money. That, that, that's a little bit of breathing space that, that allowed Walt to pursue the idea of Disneyland. But even then, March of 1952, you know, when he wanted to build the park across the street, across Riverside, on that 160 acres that now 
is mostly the 134, isn't it? It is. That's like the interchange for the 134. As someone who lives yeah. down the street on Riverside, yes, I, I walk <laughs> by it all the time. You know how California is in regard to highways. Yeah. Would they have built it and then torn it down to make room for the highway? Or would they have sent the road through Griffith Park? Yeah, I don't know. what they, I mean, it's even hard to, to think about that much. Even with a, the ABC building and there's a park over there and all that, it's crazy to think that that's where he wanted to build that park. It's mm-hmm. crazy. It doesn't seem like mm-hmm. enough land. No, I agree. I agree. But all right. So anyway, February 53, Peter Pan comes out. September of 1953. Walt cuts the deal with ABC, which then provides the seed money for the Disneyland that eventually gets built in Anaheim. You look at the map that Herbie Ryman drew, supposedly the famous weekend where you know he and Walt stayed locked in one room and, and created the map that Roy then took out to, to New York to sell ABC on. But one of the biggest things on the map, you know, next to the castle is the Jolly Roger. So Peter Pan was part of Disneyland right from the get-go and and again less than you know six months after the movie is out in theaters walt is folding it into the park and in fact i've, I've got the prospectus here the, listen to how they were initially described the peter pan attraction it's like fly through the air with peter pan over london past big ben clock beyond the second start of the right to never never land fly over captain hook's ship the indian encampment the crocodile mermaid lagoon through skull rock they mention a ride through Snow White's adventures in the Seven Dwarfs minecar. They mention a walk through the wonderful experiences of Alice in Wonderland. They talk about Pinocchio Square with Geppetto's clock shop and, and Stromboli's puppet show. And they even mention the great medieval castle whose towers loom 70 feet in the air. And if you look through the castle, you can see a magnificent carousel that's themed to King Arthur and the knights. This is the thing that kind of jumps out at me, Drew. It's like none of this, none of this would have happened if Cinderella hadn't connected with audiences in February of 1950, made that $8 million, created the seed money, the breathing space to do this. There's no mention of Cinderella at all. That's crazy. In this prospectus. And it's sort of like, what, what is that all about? And we didn't get a, ca- a Cinderella castle until Walt Disney World in 71. Yeah, and again... That's after Walt died. Right. Just this past week, there was somebody reaching out, asking about the famous photograph of Walt in the uh, Project Florida room where he's standing there and I'm five miles tall, you know, but it's, he's standing in front of the sort of the site map and people were asking about, okay, so if you look at it, you can see, you know, there's mentions of like the Cape Cod hotel and there's mentions of where Epcot, the city is, but it's like, you look at, the theme park, and literally all it says is theme park. Right. It's kind of a dummied out Main Street and some vague areas, but it's like, well, how much of the park was already worked out when Walt was alive? And and the hard reality was very little. Walt, right. Walt was more interested in Epcot. The theme park was kind of the necessary evil, the carrot to get people to come out to the swamps of Florida. But yeah, the Cinderella Castle idea was after we after we lost Walt. You got to wonder if he'd lasted five years, what what would would we have had in the center of that park? And more to the point, who would have lived in that castle? So, did you see for the new land that they're doing for the Tokyo Disneyland Resort? I mean, you've got a frozen area. Okay, I understand that. Uh, we got a tangled tower 
And I think they've got the Snuggly Duckling. It's like, okay, I get that. That's a new franchise. Did you see the other component? No. It's, it's a Peter Pan land with a giant skull rock. Interesting. Are they doing a new attraction in there? The one thing that makes sense to me, in fact, you know, to sort of bring this full circle, is David Lowry, the gentleman who did the new uh, live-action Pete's Dragon, which, by the way, deserves some love. It, it w- was actually a, a, a pretty good movie. I love that movie. I just watched it again recently. Yeah, it's did you yeah. Really? I think it's great. Yeah. It's maybe my favorite live-action remake they've done so far. It's got some great stuff. Yeah. I will give it that. But here's the thing that... He was hired by Disney to do, in the vein of the Cinderella live action, the the Beauty and the Beast, you know, live action CG reboot. He was hired to do Peter Pan. And the interesting thing is the last I heard is that this has moved out of the Disney Pictures theatrical corridor and is supposedly now being prepped for the Disney Plus streaming subscription service. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I guess Peter Pan continues to fly for the Disney company. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of flying, if, if, if people are flying around the web, Drew, and, and they want to listen to your other insights, where can they find you these Well, days? you can uh, go listen to my Mission Impossible podcast, Light the Fuse. We've got some really exciting interviews coming up, and we are... Um, the, when this airs, we're starting a two-part interview with Robert Elswit, who is one of the most famous uh, and Academy Award-winning cinematographers out there. And we've got some really special guests who I was alluding to before the show uh, coming on, and we're very excited. So keep listening. It's it's going to be really cool. He clued me into who the guest is, folks, and trust me, you want to listen yes, to the show. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. My side of the fence. We have Disney Dish with Len Testo. We have... Uh, the Universal Joint Show I do with Dustin Hughes. Uh, we have the Marvel Us Disney podcast that I do with the amazing Aaron Adams. And we have Looking at Lucasfilm with uh, the amazing Dan Z. And uh, folks, if you could do us a favor, if you find your way over to iTunes at some point, if you could rate our show or recommend our friends, that we would really, really appreciate that. And we'll call it a day here, Mr. Taylor and I, and but we will be back with a brand new episode of Fine Tuning in the very near future. Till then, take care. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. <laughs>